0: Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Welcome to episode 00096 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters, which is actually the end of the 96th line, which we all know is Omnurundry land, and I pay my respect to their elders past and present and remind everyone every time I can say it that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, there is a lot going on in the social activism space at the moment. By far and away, and rightly so, the biggest thing in town has been the thousands of people who have taken to the streets of our cities and regional centres across the country as part of the march for justice movement to draw and draw a line in the sand on the treatment of women by men by the patriarchy instigated of course by allegations of rape within the parliament house itself and historical allegations of rape levelled at attorney general christian porter allegations that the attorney general strenuously denies. The open discussion that we've had as a community about these matters has been tough, in a lot of cases it's been triggering, but they are discussions no matter how painful that need to be had. Unfortunately, one thing I'm always wary of though is what happens after the rallies, after the speeches, after the placards are lowered. The venting of frustration and pain over issues of significance can offer a just flutter or into into the into night, quite often to appear as merely a memory on one of the social media platforms a year later. So why am I framing things like this? Well, because during the media coverage of the past week and a bit and beyond that, the toing and froing on social media and the inability of the government to form a position on these matters that shows even a skerrick of human decency, three more Aboriginal people have died while in custody, three in one week. Almost to the month, 30 years after the Royal Commission handed down its final report in the black deaths in custody, we are now approaching a death toll of 500 Aboriginal men and women that have died within the confines of the state. Was there a public outcry last week on the socials? Mm, Yeah, but usually just from the, the regular types like me. Was there blanket coverage of these deaths? Well, with few exceptions, there was some coverage, but certainly not blanket. So we've had two deaths now in New South Wales and one in Victoria. Where was the public outcry? See, this is where it gets frustrating for Aboriginal people. You're you're either an advocate for social justice, for social change, or you're not. It's important to be able to see past your own patch, to see past your own set of circumstance, to acknowledge that your own agency, to acknowledge your own agency, and help those that don't have any of their own. What happens to those that are oppressed by colonialism, by the patriarchy, or by the political class should be a concern for us all. Because one thing I can say for certain that when it comes to intersectionality, Aboriginal people, usually Aboriginal women will be the first to meet you at the crossroads. The last shall be the first. Three deaths in custody in one week in 2021. Without the public's outrage, the system will seamlessly go along and cover the circumstances of these deaths because that's what it does. It's not an and or when we are advocating on these matters, it's always an and. So with all that in mind, we have two very deadly guests coming on the show tonight. Shortly, I'll be joined by the co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, Priscilla Atkins, on the ongoing horror that is Black Death and Custody. And in the second half of the show, Wirundry woman Sue Ann Hunter, who spoke with passion yesterday at the March for Justice in Melbourne, will join me as well. We'll talk to her about activism and the plight of Aboriginal women in this country. As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames.
1: Independently yours, Triple R,
0: 102.7. And uh, to tonight's first guest. More than 450 people have died in custody since the Commission, Royal Commission's final report that was published into Black Deaths in Custody over 30 years ago. On average, that's about one death in custody every three weeks over the past 30 years. In the past two weeks, there has been another three deaths in custody, two in New South Wales and one here in Victoria at the Ravenhall Correction Centre, which is just a spin name for a prison. The age of the two that died in New South Wales were 35 and 44. We don't know the age of the man who died in Ravenhall, but when you think of it, given our history and the fact that in Victoria alone... Aboriginal people are imprisoned at rates 12 times higher than the rest of the population. Is it any wonder that we continue to die in prison at such alarming rates? Now joining me on the line now to talk about this ongoing crisis is Priscilla Atkins. Priscilla is Eastern Arunta from Central Australia and a mother of 10 children and a grandmother of 17 grandchildren. Priscilla is the CEO of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency the largest legal service in the in the Northern Territory, providing high-quality and culturally appropriate legal aid services for Indigenous peoples. She's fully engaged in pursuing the rights of Indigenous people through law and policy reform and has a long history of actively promoting Indigenous culture, language, dance and music worldwide. And She's here with us tonight in her capacity as co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. Priscilla, welcome to the mission. Thank you. Now, without going into the specifics of these, you know, tragic three latest cases, why does this keep happening?
2: Well, look, we had a Royal Commission and there was excellent, you know, recommendations that came out of that, but there was nothing in place to actually implement those recommendations and for any state or territory to be accountable. So, really, you have, um, you know, a are reviewed, you have recommendations, but at the end of the day, someone is held accountable and is actually part of what they need to meet, well, it just sits on a shelf and, and that's about it. And I think that's the most disappointing thing here is that, you know, we continue to have a number of uh, deaths in custody, um, but no state and territory has actually got a strategy on play, in place on how they're going to meet the recommendations from the location.
0: I think that's one of the things about the Royal Commission report, Priscilla, was that I think there's something like 149 recommendations from the report itself where there is shared responsibility across jurisdictions. And while the recommendations themselves might actually be really fab and fantastic, it means, like you just said, that no one particular jurisdiction, no one person has responsibility for overseeing that these recommendations are implemented.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you go to any state and territory um, or any prison or any government and you ask them, what is your plan on meeting the recommendations? I'd be very shocked if any state or territory has done it. And even when we have had, like, we've had over 400 deaths since the uh, Royal Commission recommendations came out. Um, And even on that, what has changed? What has been put in place to address these increasing deaths? Um, and I can tell you there isn't anything in place and that's why
0: it continues to happen. Yeah, everyone's just, I um, mean, particularly people in power just seem to, you know, stare around, look at each other and have knowing looks about the, the trauma that this causes across communities right across Australia and particularly um, in, in remote communities. Um, one of the key recommendations from the Royal Commission all those years ago was that Aboriginal people should be locked up as a last resort. But with one well in full people in prison across the country actually being Aboriginal, it's fair to say that every jurisdiction has failed dismally at that seemingly easy task.
2: Yeah, and you're correct there. In the Northern Territory, the Indigenous population in the adult prison would be probably over 90%, and the juvenile detention centres, probably 95%. Um, So, you know, when people are going to court, there's nothing in the court system that actually says right, this should be a last resort. You know, there should be diversion, there should be community work orders, there should be all of that. That's not the place. There's there's no rule or any sort of documentation to say that is your last resort. And this is why it will continue to happen because at the end of the day, nobody's held accountable. If someone is picked up and put into a watch house and dies in that watch house because they had an illness um, that wasn't treated, That's a death in custody. That family lives with that for the rest of their life. But who's held accountable for that? Nobody. Who's charged with that? Nobody.
0: And we've seen out of the, you know, 450 deaths now, and and hopefully not counting, that no one at all has been held accountable for for any of those deaths. Um, Were you surprised? I mean, this... we are, we are used to trauma and we're used to traumatic news, um, you know, being advocates and, and fighters for our communities within the Aboriginal community. Were you surprised by the lack of mainstream response about the, the three deaths in custody in one week? Were you surprised by that?
2: Yeah, not really, because it's just like, it, it's like the norm, you know, like the high incarceration rates, so that's just normal. You know, people dying in custody, that's just normal. And, you know, like people should be shocked and angered. And it's just like, it, it, it's just like, it, it's part of everyday thing. And it's just absolutely disgusting. You know, we should be at, in this era, you know, the incarceration rate should be down. There should be alternatives to custody. This should not be happening. But where, where does the government kind of like jump up and say, right, you know, we've had this many deaths this week. What are we putting in place to address that? I haven't seen that
0: action happen. I haven't seen any response from from the federal government. I've seen limited response from the state government here in Victoria, and I understand that there was some response from New South Wales, but it actually took um, a number of weeks for the two deaths in New South Wales to actually come on the record. Yep,
2: and that's how it is. Like. If you look at it, and like you are saying, you know, there's a death, like, based on the calculations, you know, every three weeks, that's appalling. These are unnecessary deaths. These are deaths that could have been avoided. So there's 400 unnecessary deaths that we're talking about here. That's appalling.
0: It's a, it's a, it's actually a national disgrace. And now, in, in national terms, Western Australia is by far and away the worst when it comes to death in custody with an estimated 110 deaths. In that state alone and yet um, from my research there was barely a mention of incarceration rates during the recent election there is there enough being done done in wa is there enough and even impetus to actually start tackling some of these big issues given that they're such a large offender when it comes to death and custody
2: look at the end of the day if you look at any state and territory where are their justice targets where are their targets of what they are going to meet and then be held accountable to the public because it is taxpayers that are paying them? There isn't any. And this is something that we've been pushing for for years and years and years. You need to start setting these targets. There needs to be targets, you know, we've got to reduce the incarceration rate, we've got to reduce people's contact with criminal justice system, we need to reduce deaths in custody, we need to reduce the number of child protection stuff. And you're just like, you're just banging your head against brick wall. It's like, it is... There in your face, but it's like everyone's got the blinkers on, and no one wants
0: to deal with it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've I'll be honest with you, Priscilla. I've, I've found myself grinding my teeth, especially over the last couple of weeks when, when it emerged that you know three more people have died in custody after everything after the Black Lives Matters movement, um, after the Royal Commission, after all the the discussions and debates online and in media. Nothing seems to change. What needs to change? Who needs to take responsibility for this?
2: Right. Let's take it from the top. Let's look at the Commonwealth Prime Minister, Ministers, and then you have your State and Territory attorney Generals. They need to stand up. They need to say, okay, these are the justice targets that we're going to set. We're going to then report against this to the public so they can see what we're actually delivering. And let's make a significant change. And I can understand as a politician, um, they tread carefully, you know, because you know it's all about vote and the public perception. But, you know, being tough on crime, we can provide evidence that does not work. You need to be able to change the whole system and actually have realistic justice targets set by every state and territory. And then, you know, you also need to have the Commonwealth making sure that those targets are met to actually make a change. Because at the end of the day, this will keep happening, yeah. because guess what? No one is actually accountable
0: for this. I am speaking with Priscilla Atkins, who is the co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, and we're talking about the, the un, ongoing tragedy that is black deaths in custody. Um, Priscilla, what can people do to actually keep this on the agenda? And now, I understand that NATSULS, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, has a petition that they have online now to um, to force the Prime Minister or very strongly encourage the Prime Minister to speak to some of the families of the people who have died in custody, to, to hear from them their stories, hear their trauma and hopefully try and make it as real as possible for the, the highest office in the land, the impact that this has on people.
2: Yeah, and I don't think people actually even take it to that level. I don't think people actually... They just see a statistic or or an article in a paper. They don't actually see, you know, how much trauma is put to those families. They have to live with that for the rest of their lives. that their family member, their friend, um, has died an unnecessary death, an avoidable death, and no-one's held accountable. And this is where I think in every state and territory... You know, people need to start meeting with their politicians and really pushing the agenda that the governments need to put up, put their hands up and say, this is how we're going to meet the Royal Commission recommendations and this is how we're going to, um, you know, not have any deaths in custody. This is how we're going to cut all that out and actually stand up and show that to people in their states and territories.
0: What um, What have you made from a, from afar of the, um, the announcement by the Victorian government of... Uh ...of the Uruk Commission, which is a justice commission that will be a truth-telling commission... ...and will span for three years and have the, um, the powers of a royal commission. Now, that's not going to th- fix things, obviously, in the immediate term... ...but longer term, do you see that as having an impact on some of these matters? Yeah,
2: it does, because then they have to be accountable. You know, and that's what we're asking. You know, they, it's not like, um, you know, yeah, they're, they're not running like their own personal private business they are operating with taxpayers' money. And they need to show the public what they're actually doing to make a significant change for the future. And you just need to have a body that can oversee that.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's, a, it's a very taxing area. We'll, we'll keep in touch on this, Priscilla, because it's uh, I'm not going to go anywhere. And it's up to people like you, unfortunately, to, to maintain the rage. And we need to try and generate that rage across the community because that's the only way that uh, politicians and, and the systems that they run and they govern will go anywhere near trying to change those systems to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again. It's been 30 years, it hasn't happened thus far, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't maintain the rage. Um, if you want to fill out a petition that um, uh, tries to get uh, the Prime Minister to speak to families of people who have died in custody just go to natsils.org.au forward slash blm i'll say that again natsils n-a-t-s-i-l-s dot org forward slash blm priscilla thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your work
2: thank you i really appreciate um having the opportunity to speak to you and uh, your
0: listeners look after your grandchildren <laughs> thank you <laughs> see ya this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, to our second guest for the evening. Yesterday, we saw remarkable scenes across the country as tens of thousands of women and men rallied across the country to rally against the ongoing oppression of women. An issue brought to head by the allegations of historic rape by Attorney General Christian Porter, allegations that he strongly denies, and allegations of rape by former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins within the Parliament itself. The revelations of the alleged conduct in Parliament House have resulted in a tidal wave of support, frustration, and anger. Now, yesterday in the Treasury Gardens, one of the speakers, in fact, in front of more, more than a speaker, in front of around about 5,000 people who was there to perform a welcome the country uh, and was in attendance to do that in person in 2021 was Sue Ann Hunter. Now here is a little of what she had to say yesterday. Aboriginal women have
3: been resisting white male violence since the 26th of January, 1788.
0: stuff there. Um, Now, Sue Ann is a proud Wurundjeri woman. She's also the co-chair of Family Matters, Australia's national campaign to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people grow up in family, community and culture. With a background in social work and trauma therapy, Sue Anne led practice in the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and continues to work as a national level advocate for general cultural understanding and healing for our children and families. She is someone who has been on the front line and will remain on the front line when it comes to improving outcomes for Aboriginal children, women and families. So Ann, welcome back to The Mission.
1: Thanks for having me a second time. I feel privileged to be here.
0: Well, don't feel too privileged because it's the second time, so you're um, a regular on the show, but to become a friend of the show, you have to be invited back a third time. So oh. just, just with that in mind, just don't get ahead of yourself, Okay.
1: Okay, I promise
0: I won't. <laughs> now, first of all, um, your reflections on yesterday.
1: Um, I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a range of emotions from me from yesterday. I think the crowd was showed, um, I guess, a force that we shouldn't have to do as women. It shouldn't have happened. Like, we shouldn't have had that, if you want to think about it really um but because we did i think there you can start to see a movement but what it also reminds me of is as aboriginal women we've been fighting against the white male violence against you know us as women since 1788 and you know that for me really sad um and I think, how do we keep fighting? But how do we all come together as women of different race and color, and we don't leave anyone behind? So there's a, I had this just mix of emotions, mm. one that, you know, there was a bit of a, there's an awakening about what's going on, but you know, it's been going on for our mob for a long time. And, and I think when it hits a privileged culture, then it starts to change, right? It has to hit that yeah. first before there's a big powerful movement. And you're like, why does it have to be like that? Come join us. We have been doing this since forever, you know. I think that's that's my sadness in the day.
0: Yeah, but, you're kind um, of you're, you're hitting the heart of the idea of um, intersectionality there. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, these issues don't impact solely on one particular cohort of the community. There are numerous overlaps, numerous intersections that um, affect people and cohorts differently. Some more profoundly than others um is that one thing that you've noticed over the last couple of weeks with this particular movement that there has seemed to be a a focus on one cohort and not much thought given to people at the at the bottom end of the social justice arc and you know when we say that we of course mean aboriginal women and and children has that been frustrating for you it seemed to be frustrating um i seemed to get a sense from you yesterday that that was frustrating
1: yeah, it's just that, you know, it's 2021. And by the way, I just, I just want to say, this doesn't take away. I'm not taking away from anybody's trauma, black, white, yeah. whatever. Just, oh, you know, I want to honour honor those people, all of them, you know, all those women, I want to them. But what, but what I want is that, and to, to just, uh, it takes for the outrage for everybody or the majority comes when it happens in privilege. If that makes sense. So it happens in private, And there's the outrage. The fact that the um, International Women's Day, um, you know, there was a bit of a, I don't know, we'll call it a mix-up or whatever. There was no, no Aboriginal woman on that day speaking. And, you know, we just get left behind. And to be honest, I'm bloody sick of it. Like, you know, I've got a young daughter. I advocate for children. I advocate for women and, you know, we don't want to be your token talker, and we don't want to be your token person on a panel. But we, we have a message, like we, we shouldn't be an afterthought, and I think that's what sometimes we feel like.
0: Let's talk about the, the nature of activism. You've been a, an advocate your, your whole life. You've been fighting for, for your people across a number of portfolios, um, particularly childcare and, and, and families. Yeah. Um, your message yesterday really was to ask people, to ask allies and otherwise, to see past their own privilege. And yeah. now that we are here in this space where fortunately and, and thankfully we have this groundswell of support to address mm-hmm. some of these issues, um, you ask people now to to think beyond their own circumstance. Why, why is that so important? I, I think
1: that's really important because um, then you include everybody and I think within, within what I said I said it was um, you know, I probably haven't got it word for word and it was something around my hope about all women um, and really seeing each other for everything that they are and everything they could be and we need to join together in that because it's hard enough being a woman um, in this world yeah. sometimes you know, let alone a woman of colour or uh, you know, in, my, in a minority group, disability, like whatever that is. And so we need to join together. You know what? Because some of us, um, some of us need lifting up, and with the strength of others, we can do it. Just because you you are an Aboriginal woman doesn't it doesn't make you less than, you know, and it doesn't make you hurt any less. But when you have a group, particularly of other women that care, and bring you with them. Bloody hell, that makes you feel good. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, this, um, and to see it yesterday, and to see so many, just this sea of faces, and then just this array. And you know, there were men there too, which was which was amazing. But just all these different faces about the one cause is, you know. And for women, was I really, you know, um, I did take heart in it and I thought things can change for my little girl as she grows up and she can be protected. And um, The other, you know, I want to change the next things for the next generation and if me getting up there telling truth is what I need to do, then, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make sure we're not left behind.
0: Yeah, and no, those truths are... Um Often uncomfortable, especially for people that that are coming to a movement like this or or, 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 a, or a level of activism like this, probably for the first time. You standing up there and saying, "Hey, this is fantastic! Great to see you all, but we need to deep dive. Uh, we need to dive yes. deeper here and have a more nuanced discussion about what this means from people across society." And that's yeah. I, that's my read on what you were were doing yesterday. Yeah,
1: and I think look. I think when when you've got people creating rallies and, and, you know, they hear of things and they become outraged, the, um, you know, my trauma background, they become a bit, you know, let's go, let's go without really stopping and taking that breath and going, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for all women? What does this mean individually as a group, as, you know, race, religion, what have you, what does that mean? And and I think that that also happens. You get swept up with movement. Yeah, um, and so, you know, sometimes you just got to remind people that there's others. It's not just one because you know we don't feel like we don't feel the same as other women. And I mean, you see that outrage consistently on on a platform like Twitter or Facebook, where people are saying, "Yeah, it's all good to march, but tomorrow you'll forget about the Aboriginal mm. woman." Mm. You know, and we've seen that. Um, and my my other. My, there was another point I wanted to make that I actually didn't put within in my speech, and I and I probably should have. Is that and I didn't I actually. I remember why I didn't because I couldn't find the source of the statistic. Right. And it's like eighty percent. Um. I will try. I'm going to put it on radio now. So someone, please don't hold me to this. But I, I will look at up. Something I'm going like to hold you to
0: it. But go things, on.
1: Oh, oh, and I'm going to get up here and Google it. <laughs> <tough adder. laughs> Um, is that eighty percent of violence against Aboriginal women is by non-Aboriginal men? Right. And I need people to understand, that when they say, "Oh, another Aboriginal woman," it must have been, an, you know, their first thought goes to it was an Aboriginal man, but um, it's not. It's, ab- it's non-Aboriginal men.
0: Well, you're listening to the mission on uh, Triple R, and speaking with the deadly Sue Ann Hunter who did a welcome to country, but did more than that <laughs> at the uh, March for Justice in uh, proceedings in um, Treasury Gardens uh, yesterday. Um, let's talk about the, the plight of Aboriginal children, uh, sue because you know, yesterday was, you know, the, the, the plight of Aboriginal women is so closely linked to the plight of Aboriginal children. Um, yeah. How are we tracking in that space? We know that you released the um, that report last year. I think it was the Family Matters report, the annual yeah. um, one for 2020. Um, how are things tracking along along those lines?
1: So we've got um, a closing the gap target now, which you know you can agree with or not, but at least we have something. So along with that comes strategies and and funds and a focus on on reducing the rate of Aboriginal children in care. Now it's like by 45%, so it ends up being something like 5% per year. Now, people say, oh, you know, that's that's not enough, but, you know, it's been going so long that you you can't fix it overnight. Mm. So um, at Snake, we're working alongside government in in doing strategies and um, coming up with with what's sort of, you know, trying to help with what's needed, And, and I'm hoping in the next, you know... Um, year or so, we start to see stuff rolling out, and we start to see a reduction um in the rate of, of our kids. Um, but you it, it can't just work with the kids; it's the whole family. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So I used to say when I was working right on the front line as a as a therapist, particularly to DHHS, you know, you want me to work with the kids, who's working with the family, because you can't send the child back in once they've done some healing back in and heal family. Like, what are we doing? If we want to get kids home, how do we plan that? I think there's some other things, particularly in Victoria, there's, um, they've got the NOOGLE program. So they actually um, have responsibility. um, So guardianship for for, for so many children, I'm not sure how many it is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so we have a say over our own um, and the families tend to engage more because we're Aboriginal people. Then also rolled out between two programs currently is doing the sort of like investigation. So there's two agencies that are going to take that on, which hopefully that changes because then we have that cultural lens and that understanding of family. Because once you remove a child, it's very hard to get them back home.
0: Well, one thing we we know about um, out-of-home care is that, you know, Aboriginal children are less likely to be reunified with birth parents the non-Indigenous children, and 81% of them actually end up in long-term permanent care, which is just as good as just totally erasing any semblance of of, of their culture, really, because we know that culture comes from family. It comes from the community around that family, and if you've got 81% of kids that um, end up in um, out-of-home care, ending in long-term permanent care that is away from their Aboriginal parents, that's a disaster for Aboriginal culture.
1: Well, exactly. So how do you learn to be... I I think, you know, what a really good... I I like to learn... Like, when I do stuff, I think about what's that like for a child. Yeah. And so I remember um, someone... This is years ago, because I'm getting old now, but they (laughs) said to me, can you do some um, just basic cross-cultural training? It's all there. It's ready to go. And, you know, just tell your own stories. in And I'm like... Why would I tell my own stories? Like it's just because my assumption was that every family was the same and it wasn't until I unpacked my family that I realised, oh, gee, you people don't know this. You like your families are different. And it had to be pointed out to me. So unless you're immersed when you're immersed in it, I didn't know any different from, you know, my mob and my culture and the way we were brought up and that's just the way Aboriginal families are. You don't get that, do you? You don't learn how to be an Aboriginal person. And so coming back into the community at 18 is, I can't even imagine how hard that would be. And we've learned those lessons from the Stolen Generation. It should not be happening.
0: And we're, we're aware of the, the amount of lateral violence that can occur, especially with members of the Stolen Generation. And we have people, kids now, that will find themselves in the same position as members of the Stolen Generation, yep. trying to make their way back into their culture. And so it's a discussion that we as an Aboriginal community needs to have as well to ensure that those people are are welcomed with open arms when they come back into their own culture.
1: Yeah, I agree. We We need to learn. Like, we don't want this to happen again, you know? And so we need to learn those lessons. But I think we really need to strengthen our mob because we've been through a lot. And how do we... We need healing. Our families need healing. And, you know... The, the systems, the systems are not set, none of the systems are set up for us, right? They're set up, they're white systems. So we're going to fail every time until we get systems that really recognise who we are as, as people. And I don't, you know, I don't know how, all, all we've got to do is, is keep being in those discussions. And I, know, I know people complain about this and complain about that. And there are Some people that said I shouldn't have spoke yesterday, and, you know, all that. But unless we're part of the discussion and keep, you know, that little chihuahua that keeps coming into the room? i laugh myself for that. <laughs> I'm not going to give up, and we shouldn't give up. We should just keep saying what we've got to say, you know, because, you know, eventually we, we, our voice will be heard, or well, I hope our voice will be heard. And part of the reason after 20 or so years, I, I keep fighting for our kids because, you know, they deserve someone to fight for them.
0: Well, let me um, just uh, finish with this, uh, Sue. And I think the overarching and the overwhelming message from yesterday was don't let this become uh, a a Black Lives Matter moment in which thousands and tens of thousands of people hit the street to protest the treatment of black lives and Aboriginal people at the hands of the justice system, largely in this community. The message is now is to seize this moment, to seize the March for Justice moment and use that to generate a more nuanced discussion about the, the, the role that... The patriarchy plays, the role that colonialism mm-hmm. plays, and how that impacts on the lives of people right across society, but particularly those at the wrong end of the social justice arc being Aboriginal women.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that is the message, you know, exactly, exactly. Don't let it be a, a Black Lives Matter moment. And that's why I ask those questions. Do you know that there were three deaths in custody last week? Do you know, um, you know, it's the anniversary, three to years. Uh, Royal commissioning to Aboriginal deaths in custody. You know, you need to know this stuff because be as outraged as we are about this is about every other life of an Aboriginal person.
0: Well, this has been a, um, a deep discussion and if this has caused any issues for you, there is always Lifeline. There is always someone to talk to. So the Lifeline number is 13 11 14. Sue Ann, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, if you come back on the show once more, you're officially a friend of the show and you get sent out, complimentary of R a caramel, a Caramello oh, Koala. Thought, oh, I thought it was a T-shirt. Like,
1: what do I have to do to get a T-shirt around this place? That, <laughs> would, see,
0: that would see the station fold. So, no, it's just going to be oh. a, a Caramello Koala. <laughs> but, um, no
1: problem. Thank you so
0: much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.